Welcome back to Burgers, Beers and Books. I'm Ben Hobson and in this podcast I'm going to be chatting to your favourite authors about their favourite books. Now when I first thought of doing this podcast I have to say I actually imagined sitting down with other authors and actually eating burgers and having beers and having real life conversations about books but unfortunately because of you know the state of the world and everything uh, we've actually been just trying to do this over zoom but then i've also run into the roadblock of having kids and bedtimes and eating times and anyway it's uh it's all my way of saying i'm still refining this process so bear with me sometimes we'll have beers sometimes we'll have burgers but eventually one day we're going to have both at the same time it's going to be amazing this month i'm excited to have chris hammer author of scrublands silver and trust three books in the martin scarsden series that have taken australia and you know let's be honest the world by the scruff of the neck chris is a crime writer of the highest caliber so the novel he's chosen for us to read was of course crime related and i feel that in this conversation we really get into the meat of what makes a great crime novel so those working within the genre or interested in the genre in any way um really great episode for you to listen to and chris might have also revealed the title of his new book coming out this year so i'm going to call that an exclusive even if it's not and it's somewhere else i didn't bother looking because it's mine it's my exclusive so let's all just pretend exclusive content whoop whoop pretty exciting it is exciting and um i love reading his books i don't know how he manages to write one per year honestly he's kind of a uh, amazing man i guess the journalism helps but also just working his butt off so he's a hard worker and he's awesome and i really loved our chat now lastly um I want to just really thank Danny V and Words and Nerds for hosting this podcast. Without them, this whole thing wouldn't happen. We'd love for you to interact with us in any way you can. Love hearing what you're thinking of the series or even if you're reading the books that we're sort of talking about or have read them, what your thoughts are. Just love being involved in the conversation. So please uh, tweet at uh, Words and Nerds or at me, Ben Hobson. Um, I'm at at Ben Lee Hobson, Lee spelt L-E-I-G-H. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you and hear your feedback. And I do want to say really quickly before we jump into the conversation that bear in mind, uh, because we're talking about this hard-bitten crime thriller, there are definitely some sensitive things that we do touch on within the chat. So just be aware of that. All right. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Chris Hammer. How are you today? I'm pretty good. I'm just, I'm not drinking beer. I have a confession to make. Um, I just got my jab yesterday, my first AstraZeneca shot. And I'm just feeling just a tad fluey. I thought, yeah. uh, maybe I shouldn't drink beer. I can't, that sort of just that incipient headache. Oh, I don't yeah. have one, but I can kind of suspect one is sneaking around. And yeah, and a beer sort of thing that, put you over yeah, the alcohol. Yeah. So uh, forgive me, I'm drinking tea, not beer. No, look, I think that sounds totally appropriate. Um, I am drinking a beer. I'm drinking, it's actually an interesting one. I picked it up because of the label. It's a bear beer and it's made in Germany, apparently. It's quite good, actually. Quite enjoying it. Um, well, the you idea know the this. Germans have the pure beer law. They can <laughs> only have four ingredients in beer in Germany. Really? Yep. And one of them is water. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what are the other three? Hang on. Are they on here? Beer, hop, beer, uh, beer hop, hops. Uh, sorry, barley, hops. And water, yeah, well, there's those three written on here. It's only got the three water, oh, barley, it's only three, 
barley malt and hops. Yeah. There you go. Well, there you go. I've chosen well. Thank you, Chris Hammer. See, we always learn things on this podcast. This is the stuff we're here for. Um, I, I originally, when I sort of thought about doing this podcast, um, I'd originally wanted to just get in person with people and have a chat with a burger, like have them around in my house. I could cook them something, but um, it hasn't really worked out that way. Just with COVID and traveling, no one's doing or less people are doing book tours nowadays. Um, but anyway, happy cheers, beer, cheers, your cup of tea across the internet, across Zoom. Cheers. Yeah. Um, thanks for being here, Chris. I'm really, really excited to talk about the book you've chosen. Um, before we reveal the book, as uh, we just let that sit there as a mystery for a little bit, can we talk? Actually, this is probably going to be impossible to answer now that, <laughs> now that I've set up the mystery, but. <clears throat> Why did you? Why have you chosen this novel? Do you want to? Why don't you tell us what the novel is, and then maybe explain like, out of all the novels in the world, why was this the one that you thought you'd like to have a chat about? Okay, the novel is uh, "Truth" by the great Australian crime writer Peter Temple, uh, and there's a couple of reasons. When you said I'd pick a book, mm. I was thinking of all the recent books I'd read. But I thought, hey, this is a good opportunity to go back and read this book because I read it when it first came out, which is, I think, like 2009, 2010, yeah. Yeah. right? And it kind of blew me away. It was so good. Mm. Um, I'd read his previous books, which were, you know, very good, particularly Broken Shores, amazing. But Truth was just something else. Anyway, it then went on and won the Miles Franklin Award, Australia's most prestigious literary award and this yeah. doesn't happen genre books crime fiction books don't win you know the, the these top level literary awards yeah um and when it won the award i was quite you know i thought yeah that's fantastic but of course back then you see it i wasn't a crime fiction writer no and now i am you know <laughs> say you know 10 or 12 years later here i am three crime fiction books down, another one coming out later this year. And I thought, well, let's let's be brave and let's read it. Because I was a little bit worried, will it be as good as I remember it? Now yeah. that I know, you know, I've got a bit of an insider's look on how it works. Yeah. You know, when I read crime fiction books now, inevitably, I can see a little bit of the trade craft coming through, mm. you know, the hand of the author in a way that I almost deliberately didn't do before yeah, I was yeah. writing fiction myself. Yeah. So to cut that um, story short, though, you know, it stands up so well. In fact, yeah. I think I might even admire it more now than I did <laughs> back then. <laughs> um, now that I can probably have a little bit more insight on what the author is doing. Yeah. So it is an exceptional book and it leaves so many of the contemporary books, uh, mine included, you know, in the shade. I mean, it, it, re it really is that good. <laughs> I feel, Yeah, well, actually, I have to admit, I haven't, I haven't read Peter Temple, which was surprising to me as I read this just how much it inspired me in a in a way like it inspired Snake Island in a way like sort of moral complexity and complicated characters that aren't 
you know, they're all shades of different greys and, you know, they're not all morally sound, but they're all working at it. And I don't know, it was just even the clipped language. I was just like, I, I feel like this is a book that I should have read a decade ago, but I just, I, for some reason, it just had always slipped past me. And so it was really cool that you chose it. Um, I really like that this podcast can, you know, we can talk about these older books that have really inspired us. I don't know if we ever get to really chat about other people's books like this. So I'm uh, really grateful that you chose it. Yeah, it, um, you can see the kind of lineage in this book, the, the heritage of it. So it, you're talking about the clip dialogue. There's this kind of yeah. cop patois where it's like, you know, they never waste a word. No. Sometimes you have to read over it just to just get the meaning. Because yeah. it just and then there's these little bits of slang and and it's very um it's very kind of ironic and dry and, yes. and, and dotted with swear words and profanities, but but this kind of it's the talk of tough men and it, and it sort of goes back to the kind of the Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, Damon Runyon type of uh speaking. And it's it is one of the one of the joys of the book is just the incredibly taught writing. Yeah, it's, I would you know there's not a word word wasted. No. And and yet Dean, so you've got these bits of dialogue that are really, really tight. And then you'll get a descriptive passage and you'll get these kind of lists. And yeah. this is sort of describing Melbourne in the middle of a of a very hot summer, yeah. an oppressively hot summer with bushfires closing in on the town. And just before, I just randomly just went through and yeah. you can pick them out all the time. Yeah, you can. I've got a few I would like to read a bit later on, but, yeah, let's hear it. Okay, so, so here's one, and it's kind of like a list. So in between this really taut dialogue, in the ghostly city he saw the newspaper bales being dumped, the lost people, the homeless, the unhinged, a man and a woman sitting on the curb passing a bottle, a figure face down, crucified in a pool of piss, the unloaders of fruit and vegetables, men lumping pieces of animals sheathed in hard white fat and shiny membrane, a malbred dog in the gutter eating something, shaking his grey assertion head. Sort of like, and it, so, so there's this long kind of descriptive list and then yeah. boom, snap. Snap, snap. And it's so um, vivid, like the details that he chooses too, they're just so spot on. And like you're saying, they're just so taut. Like I felt like when I was reading it and it took me a while to sort of, he sort of had to teach me how to read it by like immersing me in it. Like I felt like sometimes I had to, I was, I was running at a pace, but I was always behind where the novel was. And I was sort of like, what's that? Why are they taught? Who's, you know, and it certainly wasn't a bad thing but like he he holds us like right here and just strings us along with enough that we understand enough but we're sort of guessing as to what's going on underneath the surface it's really i think that word taught is a really good word to describe this novel it's look it's l let me just give it a setup yeah. so i mean it's a crime book so we don't want to do spoilers no but essentially the story is told exclusively from the point of view by acting inspector Steve Villani, who's 
the head of homicide in Melbourne, in Victoria, right? So he's a he's a senior cop, yeah, and he's carrying a lot of baggage with him, right? All sorts of stuff, and all we get is his point of view. But he's there's no attempt to explain his point of view. No. So what we normally do, most writers would do, myself included, is try and help the reader out and make yeah. it really explicitly clear. Oh, this is this person. And, you know, maybe somehow with a bit of exposition you get a bit of a potted history and go, right, he's like this and that bloke's there. Instead, you sort of hit with his sea of names. And you, at first you can't w- kind of work out who's who in a way. Oh, like, man. You know, they may be all cops. but yeah. So it's almost like you get an over, overload of, of names. Yeah. And, and you know, it's like as, as the sort of the, the crime writer, I'm thinking, Oh, I should be I should be writing down these names and drawing a diagram. And then I realized, no, this is you've just got to go with it. Yeah. And of course, as you get along, you work out who's who and who's important and, and what matters. And anyway, the story starts with the discovery of a body of a young woman, um, a <clears throat> sort of a teenage prostitute, I guess, in this new glamorous high-rise building. In Melbourne, um, you know, the absolute elite of the elite yeah. uh, housing, you know, this this new casino. Um, it's full of Melbourne's money, in other words. And yet there's a the body of this young girl in a bathtub, but all the evidence is gone. They don't know who she is. Yeah. The sheets are gone. The clothes are gone. All the friends, there's no forensic evidence left. There's just a body. Yeah. And then shortly after, the bodies of three men are discovered in like a warehouse in an industrial part of ground. And it's the exact opposite. Yeah. There's so much evidence. These guys yeah. have been tortured in the most horrible and graphic ways. They, you know, and, of course, the suspicion is there that you know, these crimes will somehow be linked by the time we get to the end of the pool. You yeah. know, it's a typical crime-writing trope. Yeah. But you got no idea why. So, but then you think, okay, here we are. We're going to go off on this investigative thing. But one of the beauties of the book is, and by the end of the book, you do know who did what and yeah. why. Yeah. So in that sense, a traditional crime book. But so much of the book is not about that. It's the exploration of Villani himself as he goes about trying to find out who committed these crimes while dealing with the, a cri- two crises in his family, one with his father, yeah. who, who he's got this very remote relationship with, um, the old guy's a Vietnam vet who's never shown him any love, essentially, and his place is under threat, including the trees that, that he and his dad planted. Meanwhile... His relationship with his wife is falling to bits um, and his relationship with his daughters is completely fraught, to say the least. So the book ends up being more an exploration of this guy Mm. and he's a guy whose moral compass is starting to waver. Yeah. Um, He's traumatised, he's fatigued, 
he's seen too much, he knows too much. You know, it, it reminds me of the great Raymond Chandler line, you know, um, down these mean streets must walk a man who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. Well, Villani isn't mean, but he can be brutal. Yeah. He's certainly not afraid, but he is tarnished. Yes. So, so he, he's a morally kind of compromised guy mm. trying to negotiate a morally compromised world. I mean, he by no means is the most morally compromised. There are some really awful pieces of work in his book. Um, and this tough world, it, the language of the writing so suits the story. Yeah. You know, they're, they're kind of inseparable. Yeah. Uh, anyway, how about that for a, for a potted overview? <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. I appreciate you doing that because I always really struggle to sum up books like that. So you've done a really good job. I do. I do agree. Like it's completely about, it's like, I mean, I think that the crime's important. Like his job's important to him as it is with like most people, I think like their career and how much of their energy is spent in doing this thing that they are born to do. And that I think Villani, he is like actually really good at his job, but he, at the same time, he sort of forsakes these other things in his life. Um, like you were saying, like his relationships, but they're also, I don't know, like, do, do you find like he had a sort of a lack of, a lack of self-awareness sort of like there was certainly introspection where he'd think about things, but like the way he would, it's difficult sometimes because when you read a novel like this, you're just like, go and talk to your daughter. What are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, and um, I always go back to Jane Austen, who my wife has tried to get me to read a few times because she loves Pride and Prejudice, but I hate it. Yeah. Like I can't, I just want to <laughs> shout it. The writing's amazing, but I can't get by these people who just sit there and don't talk to each other. It just makes me mad. Like, come on, just say, you know, I have feelings for you. Elizabeth, like, I don't, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And some of this is like that. You're like, just get over the thing and go and like this, the solution simple. And the thing that he should be caring about, like his relationship with his dad and like his relationship with his daughter sort of gets pushed to the side in favor of his relationship with his mission. And I oh, guess yeah. I just find that really human thing. Like, I think that's a really human and relatable dilemma you know the the time that we spend focusing on the thing that we love versus maybe sometimes the thing that we should be doing maybe yeah well but you're absolutely right in that he's totally defined by his job so he has these moments of introspection yeah um and then and then the phone rings and it's work and work just takes over again and and at points in the book work takes over in utterly disastrous ways yeah. that, that just end up having the most uh, terrible consequences. Um, but he's a man that's totally defined by the job, even as he suspects the job is essentially rotten. Yeah. So he's, I mean, and there's, there's one guy in the book who's a cop, one of his offsiders, who, who at one point says, look, I'm sorry, 
I've just had enough. I've seen too much. I'm, you know, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to go and work in real estate. <laughs> and and Falani just kind of has contempt for him. Yeah, <laughs> he, well, he would. Where, 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 where's, he probably should be doing the same thing, right? He yeah, exactly. Be, but he, he just doesn't have the... I mean, he's obviously a very smart guy. Mm. Um, very smart and very perceptive. Um, but he he has these blind spots. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's a good word for it. Like he doesn't, he's not able to turn that lens onto his own life as well as he is on other people. Yeah, and yet he's capable of these acts of generosity and kindness, including, mm. you know, to this old woman whose son has been killed by the cops in very suspicious circumstances. Oh, yeah, gosh. I'd actually forgotten so, so, that, Man. So, so, so he's... He's taking time to look after her. He calls on his old man every now and then, even though his father never kind of reciprocates with any kind of mm. gesture. And, you know, he, he has more or less abandoned his, his direct family, his wife and his two girls. Um, so it ends up being a, a character study, but yeah. it also questions morality because by the end of the book you're saying well what should he be doing and why isn't he doing that Mm. and the end of the book is is kind of brilliant because in the end he finds out who you know who did what and Mm. in a sense justice prevails they save the life of you know someone whose life needs saving and so in that but then the end of the book, he finds himself in his in a position that really makes you think. It really yeah. makes you think. Why has he decided to do this? Yeah. Why? What compromises are involved with this? Mm. Who is he working with now? Um, and it, and it's it's a great ending in that sense because even though in one sense it's it's completely natural the way it ends it just leaves the reader thinking which is always which is always say a challenge in any book but you know saying a crime book in one sense you need to tie up all the crimes right you need to tell the reader who killed whom and why yeah and how um but yeah the best books do you know do stay with you after you finish reading it, right? And mm. this one, this one does that very well. In fact, it does it exceptionally well. And I think, you know, as a as a writer and reader of crime, so many books, crime books, fail at the last because <laughs> they just don't quite tie things up. Yeah, you know, they they just in the end they just at, 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 it's like a gymnast doing flips off the vault. It's all great until they try and land and then they sort of belly flop or something. Yeah. Yeah. So so this one does. I would say too, though, like I think that some crime novels are too neat. Like they just wrap up things too tightly and you sort of get the feeling like, oh, like that doesn't feel that I feel happy. I guess I feel happy like, you know, this thing's come to a conclusion and it's probably, you know, very cathartic. 
but it doesn't feel human to me. It doesn't feel like an authentic thing when it's just yeah. everyone's happy as Larry and no one's, you know, having therapy for the next 30 years to deal with the, <laughs> the things they've gone through in the novel. But I think that this book does that really well. Like it's like you're saying, it does wrap things up, but it's sort of, a, it still has the question of what's the cost? Like, was it worth the, the cost that he paid to do the thing that he needed to do to, um, to like you say, solve these crimes? Um, I guess it leaves a big question mark on maybe the emotional threads of it, but it still wraps up a few of the more plotty parts of the novel. I think that's really clever. Yeah, and there, there is some resolution yeah, that's There's true. There's resolutions to his relationship with a mistress, that's relationship true, yeah. with his immediate family, certainly his relationship with his father. Um, so these these things are resolved to an extent. Yeah. Let's um, not live happily ever after, that's for sure. No, like, um, and just on this, like I found, you know, I'm sorry if I do spoil things. I'm, I'm, I'll try to skirt around things, but... At the end, like I love this scene because it just felt like this this encapsulation of the what I feel is a really authentic study of real people. Like they feel like real people and there's still something more going on, but it's not quite neat. It doesn't feel neat. Um, so there's that scene at the end where he helps his father fight the fires and then, you know, he and his brothers and then the three, the four of them are overwhelmed with the flames and they have to lop off the top of a water tower and then they hide in the water tower and they're waiting to die. And like when they were getting in there, you know, the, I guess the movie watching instinct of me is to think there's going to be this beautiful moving speech on the part of the father. Like he'd finally say, you know, I really appreciate you son. Like, I'm really proud of you. Thanks for, you know, something, but, and I'll read it cause I, I, it made me laugh when I read it. So, and here's one of these lists as well. Um, it says, they stood in the tank, shoulders touching, water to their chins, nothing left to say. This was the end of vanity and ambition. This was what it had come to, the five of them. Five of them. The yeah, Bob's. There's... Oh, there's a friend. Yeah, sorry. There's a friend yeah. of the family as well. All yeah. Bob's boys here to die with the man himself, some instinct in them, some humming right had pulled them back to death's booming and roaring, waiting room to die together in a rusty, sore-toothed tub. And here comes the great speech, and it ends up being about a bet he's made on a horse. What about that stand in the day, said Luke, which was a bet that he'd, uh, a recommendation, a gambling recommendation he'd made to his father. Bloody ripper, said Bob, need more tips like that. They did not look at one another. Ashes fell on them, drifted down and stuck to their faces, lay on the water, coated the face of the old yellow dog Bob was holding to his chest. Like there's something beautiful and human about that. Like <laughs> you'd expect, I guess the corny monologue about how much he's appreciated his boys and, you know, this is it boys, you know, love being your dad. But no, it was about gambling. And I don't, just felt really real to me. It made me laugh when I read it. The whole of the books like that, the more yeah. emotionally charged the scene is, the more these blokes, these quintessentially Aussie tough guy blokes, the more they retreat into some removed and ironic kind of expression. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes finally said, you know, we're here. here. Um, it's to do with dead people. 
<laughs> like murder victims or anything like that. Yeah. It's just this. this uh, so Peter Temple um, was South African. Right? Mm, I, so I he didn't that. come to us. He didn't come to Australia until I think maybe late twenty something like that. Forced, well, less forced or chosen to leave apartheid South Africa. Mm. Uh, now I have to tell you this, Ben. He yeah. was my writing teacher at university in the eighties <laughs> doing journalism. Okay. So, which is how I came to read his books. So back then he was not. Um, he didn't have any fiction published. Whether he is secretly writing it, I don't know. Yeah, but he was he was a remarkable stylist. He was teaching us not news writing, but more like magazine newspaper feature writing. Yeah, and he could be he could be a complete bastard. Absolutely excoriating. You know, I reckon he traumatized half the class. There, there. Are, <laughs> There are people in Australia who had very long, successful and high-profile careers as television reporters because they were so afraid of Peter they switched from the print stream <laughs> to the broadcast stream. <laughs> right? But at the same time, it was, it was a very small place. And so it could be like that in class. And then you'd run into him at the bar and he was the most charming and very, very funny and kind of dry uh, sense of humour, mm. um, quite charming, um, but still with a very strong South African accent. So it was then, it was when he started writing his Jack Irish books. Well, I know Peter, and I, I always admired his ability with the words. I thought, so I read them and I really liked them, and they're great, they're great books. But The Broken Sure and Truth are definitely a step up. They're about mm. a lot more than being a crime fiction book. But one of the things about the Jack Irish books, for example, and people who have watched the television program would pick up some of this too, is he was such a good observer, particularly yeah. of Melbourne, such a keen ear for the Australian vernacular, how people actually speak, particularly that weird kind of patois, as I said, that cops use and publicans use and you know he he understood you know he had, he had the you know in the jack irish book the fitzroy supporters club had met at the pub and of course fitzroy is no longer in the um in the afl right mm. so so you know it's it, you know they're, they're barracking for a team that no longer exists and that and i just think it's remarkable though that that this guy has in a way picked up and understood the Australian vernacular and some of its cultural sort of bits and pieces, much, much better than many a native-born Australian would ever hope to do. I agree, yeah. And and I, I've got a little thing here I wouldn't mind reading too that sort of shows the way the dialogue works. But it did often feel like he was just holding up a recorder. Like it just felt like he was just dictating what was really being said. But it's really interesting to hear that there was a lot of craft that went into it, like whether or not he wrote it out in a different way and then, then came back and clipped it later on. Or It's just amazing how, like you're saying, it's much more than just like you beauty and, you know, fair dinkum and 
it's yeah, not, it's none of that. It's none of that. No, it's just it's the way people actually speak. Um, do you mind if I read just this little bit? It's just a it's just a scene. Yeah, I yeah, please do it. I think you could open the book just about anywhere and do it's it. Kind, but it's kind of what yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Keely, I'm not actually so, sure who Keely is from memory. This is a really short scene. Like you can see, it's less than a page. Like it's a really short little chapter. Um, Keely is a senior police officer. Yeah. And so Keely's talking about Villani and, and Keely says, Keely found a focus above Villani's head. Also, I think I should be playing a more upfront role, he said, as the number two. Never a good number two. Upfront how? Well, representing the squad. You want to be the spokesman rather than lower ranks? Yes. It's horses for courses, said Villani. Excuse me? The practice has been to let squad leaders speak. Burke will keep you briefed. Actually, I don't expect to be briefed by Junior, said Keely. Villani gave him the stare, let the time pass. Keely couldn't bear it. Here's an offer, said Villani. You don't get hissy and I promise to be more inclusive. Is that the word? <laughs> like, it's just, I don't know. It's it's like the, the way that this, you know, never a good number two. Yeah. Like, he doesn't say two's never a good number, never a good number two. Like, that's, you know, it's just a simple thing, but that's a lot of the way that we speak. We don't speak in full, complete sentences. We don't speak with everything around the right way. And it's very, it just felt so Australian. And then, yeah, when I read that he was actually a South African native, I was kind of shocked. Like you say, it's um, kind of incredible the way he did it. Yeah. Um, Keely is actually, a, he's been brought in from New Zealand as a clean skin. And so he gets no respect because he doesn't have the history. He's not part of the culture. And so every now and then, He's actually, I think, technically Villani's boss. So he's, seen, he's actually senior to Villani. Yeah. And, you know, Villani every now and then just lets fly with it like a sheep shagging joke or something. Just yeah, like, something well, just actually, totally inappropriately and over the top. That's the thing too. Like, that's the cops. That's what they do. Like in this actual scene at the start, it says, welcome, said Villani. Chance to do a hucko over there? <laughs> like as a way of greeting. He <laughs> goes... <laughs> yeah, Here's one. So I just open. Um, he's with his father and they're worried about the fire. They're not saying they're worried, but the fires are threatening to burn down his father's thing. Um, they talk about, um, you're going now? As in, is he going to leave? He's asking his dad. You're going now? He knew the answer. Throat clearing. Nah. Took the horses over to Old Gill, put them in with his. He's got a set-up sprays, the stable, all day yet, if it have to. Well, you better get in there with them then, you and Gordy. Bob's hard laugh. No, mate, no. Gordy's got an old fire truck. It's full. B-O-N C-F-A. That's going to save my trees? Come, son, only the good Lord can save the trees. First mention of him I've heard from you. Figure a speech. Make it Father Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, so, so I mean, I mean, it, and it almost steps up if the emotional stakes are high. So he's talking to his father about, you know, yeah. possibly dying in a fight. And there's times, context. and there's times of violence, uh, you know, when their lives are on the line. And again, this kind of, Smart, almost smart ass, dry, tough man talk comes out. Yeah. 
it reminded me somewhat of the old ABC program Blue Murder, uh, which I only saw reasonably recently because it was banned for decades in New South Wales because it mm. detailed the adventures of the now not only disgraced but convicted New South Wales detective Roger Rogerson and the way they spoke and carried on and and, and the kind of brotherhood that they felt because they'd been through all this sort of shit together. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of, even though they hate what's, what each other might have done, there's a kind of a loyalty there too. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we're just talking about too, like the the way the writing is so quick and ugly at points, not not... I don't mean ugly as in it's not well written. I mean ugly as in it's just brutal and, like you say, clipped and just not. It's not an easy meal at points. You know, once I got into it, I was reading it like like a clip. Like I was just reading it and I was in the voice of it and I got it. But I was reading reviews of it and it seems that people like really fell in love with it. And it's either five stars or one star. And it's not. I think there's a type of guts to what he did with this because he's not giving people something easy to digest. He's not giving someone like an easy meal or a, like we were talking about like a neat little bow at the end. He's making people really work and think and I guess earn the book a little bit. And I guess I just wanted to ask you like, what do you think the value is of that? Like a, an author who refuses to, I guess, make things easy for the reader. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, look, I think, you know, we'd all like to be, we, we, we'd all like to be successful. Mm. And even if it's unconsciously, we might pander to what we think the tastes of people are. And for, for example, what's politically correct. This book would potentially maybe be a little bit more divisive now because it's so blokey and it's so brutal. Yeah, that's a um, good point. Uh, but it, I think it'd still probably be five stars or one. Yeah. I, th I think Peter had, had a lot of success by the time he wrote this book. So I would, my guess is he just did not care about any of that. He just wanted to write a really good book. Yeah. Um, and now I think it's possibly the lesson for all of us as authors, rather trying to write to what we think people want or what we think the fashion says is good or whatever. Yeah. He just, so he'd written, he, he basically, I think, sharpened his craft and learned his craft and got better and better at it writing the Jack Irish books and other standalone books and then really just stepped it up a notch. And I think part of it was he'd had success. I yeah. mean, he, I don't know how many books he sold, but he won all sorts of prizes, right? So all the all the big crime fiction prizes, right? So he won the won, Ned Kelly, I think it said like five or six times. Yeah, in fact, he, he didn't put truth in for Ned Kelly because he just thought I should give someone else a chance. Now, if you think <laughs> of that, that is a level of what arrogance, I guess. <laughs> So I am so good that this shit, this is just going to win. So why not just give someone else a chance, right? So yeah, so he's probably right. But and he was the first Australian to win um, the UK Crime Runners Association's Gold Dagger Award. 
so Chris, isn't, so Chris had... isn't that what you've you maybe won as well possibly no what did you uh, win you no, won some I... crime association uk thing yeah same same um same mob but mine was for um for my book scrublands and it was for the best debut novel okay and it's um it, it is um that's huge yeah, I mean it's a very prestigious award, but yeah, the, the gold dagger um, since Peter Jane Harper has won it for the dry, and Michael Robotham has now won it twice, um, but still I, the only three Australians. And Jeez. I think Michael's books were probably for one set in the UK, but um, so and that, now and I think the one that won that wasn't truce it was the one before the broken shore can you truce sorry is, just to stop for a second i'm sorry to interrupt you but the broken yeah. shore because i haven't read it and yeah. that's a prequel to this novel is that right or it's not really a prequel it's not like a they're not super tied together there's some things right so in this in this book there is a little cameo from jack irish you just yeah i saw that yeah or yeah. something you know it's like a one you know it's a a, a bit of a probably a bit of an indulgence but his best <laughs> his best mate is this guy called joe cashin who's come through this awful experience in the broken shore um which has given another villani another reason to to question his profession and his life so the broken shore is set in rural victoria i think it's off down along the great ocean road and it follows a guy called Joe Cashin, who's a kind of a, I think he's a cop, still a cop, but he's on like trauma leave or something. Um, and Villani plays a very small role in that book. And so it's not really a sequel. It's just, a, it is in some ways a kind of a continuation, but not only don't you, is it not necessarily necessary to have read Broken Shore? Yeah. If you have read Broken Shore, it really doesn't help that much with this. <laughs> you know, it's it's like two completely separate stories with an over couple of overlapping characters. That's it. Yeah, because a few of the places had it listed as Broken Shore number two, which is interesting. That's you know that happens with marketing. Yeah. Um. P- p- you know. If it, particularly if a book's been successful, the marketers want to market it as that. So I can see why, yeah, but they don't say, they might say Broken Shore number two, but they don't say Joe Cashin number two. And, and you know, Broken Shore's not Steve Villani one. Yeah, that's true. Which is, which is typical, like with my book, Scrubland, Silver and Trust, it's often called, you know, Martin Scarsden 1, Martin Scarsden 2, Martin Scarsden 3. That's, that's just the book trait. That's how, that's how they sell books. Yeah, and I guess that makes sense, you know, and you got to, they're wanting to sell books for you and that's, you know, it's a good thing. Um, I'd love to hear a few things here because I've got some quotes from Temple about writing and obviously if you're a student of his, you probably heard him say these sorts of things. But um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts were on these quotes. So he said here, in writing, I'm totally anti-plans of any kind. All my attempts to plan and plot novels have come to grief and in expensive ways. Does that ring? (laughs) Um, 
So this go this goes back to the old dichotomy that we are, we often run into, which is the plotters versus the pantsers. Yes, yes. The plotters being, and it was particularly so with crime writers, plotters the ones who plot out their books before they start writing their narratives and the pantsers who write by their seat of their pants. And what Peter is saying here is that he's a pantser, that he's tried to plot and it doesn't work for him. It's not necessarily, I think, advice for other writers because it's you know, he's just saying him, what yeah. works what works for him. Yeah. Um, I have heard it said, and I, I think it's probably true that plotting isn't his strong point, but some of his, say, Jack Irish books, you read them more for the atmosphere, and you, more because you care about what happens to Jack and. Um, that sort of thing, right? And, and you know the style of them, mm. as opposed to the tightly plotted thing. And I look, I think in many crime books that ends up being a factor that the things that are most memorable are often the characters or a particular scene or a situation or the setting or or whatever it is. Yeah, um, there is. I, I I think Temple does borrow someone, as I said, from that, or not borrow, but you know, is the descendant, if you like, the heir of, of those sort of American hard-boiled detectives books, you know. And Raymond Chandler is often held up as the sort of master of that. In his book, The Big Sleep, early on, one of the minor characters has murdered a chauffeur. And it's never made particularly clear in the book who the murderer was. The, the murder of the main, you know, he mm. sent out, but not the murder of this minor character, this chauffeur. And at the time, everyone's saying, well, this is a masterstroke, you know. This just shows Chandler's, you know, mastery of the genre that, you know, he's left it there for the reader to work out or, you know, <laughs> the reader to decide. Yeah. But then, then it came to the making of the film, and it, which you know, inevitably starred Humphrey Bogart as, as you know, Philip Marlowe, you know, that, that, that or Sam Spade, whoever it was, you know, yeah. the, 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 the hard-boiled detective. And so the scriptwriter said to Chandler, who himself was a, an accomplished um, screenwriter, um, look, we've got to know uh, who killed the chauffeur, to which Chandler said, why ask me? <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't really know. And, and, and he did, probably didn't really care. Yeah, that's you know, interesting. He wasn't, too. he wasn't so overwhelmed with tying up every element of the plot in a bow. And I suspect with Peter Temple, he wasn't just interested in, in constructing an elaborate puzzle. Yeah. Which is, which is, I think, you know, maybe some crime books are like this, you know, the Agatha Christie books. It's like this sort of rather elaborate sort of Sudoku, okay? And the joy for the reader is trying to put the clues together. It's not a story of, of questionable morality or, or deep insights into human nature or anything like that. That's what those books are. And, you know, um, and fantastic books they are and, and loved by millions and millions. But I don't think that's what was motivating Peter Temple. No. He wanted to write books where the language sang. I think yeah. that 
and he wanted to write books that explored human nature. And he wanted to write books that captured this quintessential niche of Australianism. And, and they were his, his driving forces and his motivations. And the plot, well, yes, you need a plot. <laughs> so, it, actually, but, you know. There's actually uh, another quote here from him, which is actually almost saying exactly what you just said. So he also oh. said, he said, in everything I've written, the crime has always just been an occasion to write about other things. I don't picture myself as writing crime novels. I like fairly strong narrative, but it's a way of getting the plot moving. So he's sort of just shrugging a little bit there at the plotty stuff. And he just really likes what the plot allows him to write about, I guess, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I, I think the plot actually in truth is pretty good. Me too. Um, there, there's, it's, there may be one or two minor weaknesses, but the, it does make sense. It does come together. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of pace in the book, um, so you get these moments of introspection, and you get these short descriptive pa passages, those kind of lists I was talking about, and this snappy dialogue. But there's a lot of action. They, they keep going places and doing things, and the, the kind of the structure of the book, even though it's all told by his his from his point of view, the chapters are really, really, really short, like three yeah. or four pages. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at one here that's, well, that's two pages. And the next one's maybe five and, yeah, and on it goes. Um, to the extent, there's another one that's three pages, but to the extent that um, they're not numbered because it'd be distracted because I reckon there's probably in a book of 300 and, 70 pages there's probably 80 chapters or something you know something like that it's it's it, so, so it's really kind of tight and pacey it's the other thing about it it's not um it's kind of spare and taut so it's not an overly long book no it fits it fits a lot into quite a tight space heaps yeah um on the on what we're talking about here too because i i really like I like, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a really well-structured novel and it's got a lot of, I think, in like, eh, he's just sort of naturally gone in this realm of a storyteller. Like he was such a good storyteller that a lot of these things, I think, whether or not he shaped the plot, it was a great narrative, like a really strong narrative. But the thing I think that I like about the novel, especially are all the little parts that maybe don't necessarily have anything to do with the plot or even the main characters. I just like that they set a world that feels lived in. And on the podcast, I like to talk about opening sentences and I want to read the opening sentence here and the first scene just, as well. Yeah, go on. I, I just opened the book. This yeah. is completely at random, right? Yeah, Here's yeah. one of the lists. In uniform, which means he's looking back to the days when he was in uniform, okay? Yeah. In uniform, a full understanding of the job slowly dawned. A life spent dealing with the dishonest, the negligent, the deviant, the devious, the desperate, the cruel, the callous, the vicious, the drunk, the drug, the temporarily deranged and permanently insane, the sick and sad, the saddest, sex maniacs, child molesters, flashes, exhibitionists, 
women beaters, wife beaters, child beaters, self-mutilators, the homicidal, matricidal, patricidal, fratricidal, suicidal, some of them dead. <laughs> Jeez. Man, he's good, eh? Like, yeah, those yeah. lists are so... And it's almost like a cop's speak to, like listing things yeah. they've seen and noticed. But the first, the first the opening sentence is one of these lists. And it goes, on the Westgate Bridge, behind them a flat in Altona, a dead woman, a girl really, dirt hair, dyed red, pale roots. She was stabbed too many times to count, stomach, chest, back, face. The child, male, two or three years old, his head was kicked, blood everywhere, on the nylon carpet. It lay in pools, a chain of tacky black ponds. So this, like to me, is an amazing opening and I like that a chain of tacky black ponds, I find really visceral and horrifying to think about, which I think, again, Temple was a master at. But the thing I like about this is that like that's a that's not a part of the book. Like, that's just a scene of a crime that he's left. There's nothing more for that crime. He's moving on. To, he gets a call while he's driving to go and find the woman that you mentioned earlier in the high rise apartment. And so this scene and this little thing is mentioned. And to me, it could have been like the whole part of the novel, like a plot. But then later on, like it's done away with in like the next page where they found the the um, the father and the husband. He'd driven home and just left his car on in the garage and um, killed himself in the garage. And uh, so they're like, yep, case shut, done. And it's two pages and it's the opening. And like, the, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't come back. It's not like, I but find that just setting the character, setting the scene, setting the world. And it's so, it's, he just sort of walks over it. And it's sort of what Milani does in his life is it just deals with these horrible things. I just think it's so clever and it's not done as often as, like I feel like another author might've made a bigger meal out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, or just not have it in there. Yeah, because or, it doesn't. Yeah, because it doesn't directly reference stuff. Or referenced it later. Yeah, you know, just so. One thing I remember from Peter uh, when he was teaching, uh, he hated lazy writing, and he hated particularly cliches. So, in in the writing of the book. You know, I dare, you, I dare you to find a cliche, right, or a hackneyed phrase. And sometimes the phrases he, 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 he does use, he mixes the, the, the language in such a way as it comes out as very original, but with, with high impact. You know, you know exactly what, what he means. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, that, that list I read before, the men carrying the meat with all hard, fat, and yeah. the sheen of the membranes or something. It's just like, you know, an image of guys at Meatworks or something, right? But it's, yeah, it's just remarkably well done. And it's, I get the sense, I mean, I was, I was, I was good with that other quote, right? So, so I guess kind of right. I have the feeling that, that he as a writer is one of those Hemingway type, type writers that, that, okay, maybe he's a bit of a pantser, Maybe he makes it up as he goes along. Maybe he doesn't have a plot. But once he's got it written, he goes back over and over again and polishes yeah. and particularly, particularly deletes anything superfluous out. 
Yeah. So it's just really very tight. Yeah, but see, that's the thing. Like he deletes, I think he deletes, like you say, I think it's like it's so crisp and taut. So he must go back and edit heavily. And yet he left that scene in. Like if you yeah. really got to it, you could have deleted the entire first chapter. Because then he goes on with this story about, um, I don't know how to say his name, Burkertz, Burkertz, where yeah. his, his granddad was on a, on a bridge construction and it fell and then 14 men died and it was this big catastrophe in Melbourne. And then they move on to the actual plot, the next thing, you know what I mean? But if you're actually trying to get it, you would get rid of that scene. But it, like Temple knew that that's the thing that was important right? Like he left it in there because of what it was doing. So, you know, the, the, the collapse of the Bluescape Bridge, it was 50 years ago. It was a big anniversary stuff last year. And for people in Melbourne, it was, I mean, I mean it really, it really yeah. felt very sorely in the city at the time. Um, and it probably still is, and it's not remembered to the same extent elsewhere in Australia. But it does, so you're right, this is, so on the bridge, which is now there, coming back from this murder when they get the call. Yeah. Um, so, so this is him talking about the, the bridge. 112 metres of newly raised steel and concrete, 2,000 tonnes. Men and machine, tools, lunch boxes, toilets, whole sheds, even someone said a small black dog barking, all fell down the sky. Isn't that a great image? Fell down the sky. Yeah, I love that. 35 men were dead or dying, bodies broken, sunk in the foul grey crusted sludge of the Yarra's bank. Diesel fuel lay everywhere. A fire broke out and slowly a filthy plume rose to mark the scene. Dead, said Villani. No, taking a shit, rode the dunny all the way down. Certainly passed on that shit riding talent, said Villani. <laughs> so it's kind of like whenever they touch on something to do with themselves personally, mm. the response is some kind of smart, tough guy line. Yeah. And it's set right there in the in the first. It's a little bit like, you know, in the in the movie. You have the opening sort of scene setting scene that really doesn't have much to do with the storyline and it just kind of sets the atmosphere and then, and then the titles roll and yeah. then the story proper begins. Yeah. yeah. So the James Bond uh, opening little bit. But I, I feel like, like I don't know whether or not nowadays, and I don't know what your feeling is on this, but whether readers now are a bit more wanting to get to the action, wanting to get to the the thing, the meat of it quicker. Like, I don't know whether that's because of the rise of, you know, Netflix and the way TV series work nowadays where they sort of just have to hook you in immediately. And then, like you say, it normally flicks back to other stuff and you lead up to the start. And I don't know whether you feel like um, readers maybe aren't as patient with this stuff like that nowadays? Not indicting uh, readers at all, but just the tastes, I think, of the times can change. And I don't know whether the tastes are the same with that sort of thing. The patience to read a three-page scene that just does nothing beyond set the scene, I guess. Look, I I suspect this book, if it came out now, would be just as celebrated. 
because it is very original and does stand out. Yeah. Um, a couple of interesting things about it. There's no, there's no really clever slate of hand here. Um, there's not that dramatic prologue and then mm. the story opens. You just start in the middle of the story. Pretty much as he gets the word to go and look at this murder in, the, in this sort of glamorous tower with the casino. Um, it's told chronologically. It's not full of flashbacks. You know, he remembers when he was a kid, for sure, and he remembers things that happened with his wife, you know, when they first met. But it's him remembering. It's not, it's not sort of flashback, flash forward. There's yeah. none of those. There's only one point of view. So there's nothing... There's no tricks, no narrative tricks. There's no tricks and there's no, there's no, um, there's not a lot of fashion in it, if I put it that way. He's not yeah. trying to, you know, fit in with, with whatever the fashion of the day is. I mean, I'm not sure if there is, I guess there is in, in, in crime books, it, it's, it, but it does seem to me like his ear is all about, you know, those great, you know, the Damon Runyons and the, mm. Chandlers and hashet, uh, hammets and stuff. Yeah, yeah, sort of. Yeah, a bit old-fashioned that way. Um, I've got another quote here. I'd love to read because I think this book is just full yeah. of amazing writing. Um, this one is describing the um, the scene of torture that you mentioned. <laughs> um, and again, it's brutal. But I just this has said a lot to me about like Australian cop sense of humor, sort of thing. So this person's describing what happened in the scene. It says, man, man near entrance is shot in the head at close range from behind. The other two, multiple stab wounds, genitals severed, other injuries, also head and pubic hair ignited, shot, muzzle in mouth, three bullets recovered, 45 caliber. Villani said, so you can't rule out an accident. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <Isn't> that... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it's almost like the worse the situation, oh. the more... You know, the 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 more oh my, stop flipping it. This is just dry. Yeah, dry. and I, you know, I've 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 heard and read. You know that often if you're in one of these jobs where something can be that traumatic, you just you can't do anything but make things a bit more normal by laughing about it a little bit. Oh, it, absolutely. I mean, it's a bit of a. I mean, certainly with the military. I think with the police. Yeah. Um, with, with people who deal with you know, aid workers. I certainly know that from my years sort of as a, as a roving correspondent overseas that um, war correspondents speak like that. They have this kind of this tough guy yeah. where, where, they, where they drink too much and yeah. they can't, can't maintain a proper monogamous relationship yeah, it's all all very familiar. Yeah, yeah. Um, we might finish up, Chris, um, if that's all right. I just had one last question for you. I appreciate your time with me this tonight. I don't know how long we've been talking. Oh well. <laughs> um, so the question <laughs> the question is, what do you what rereading this book? I guess maybe I've got two questions for you. First question is, rereading this book, what's something that you think you can take away from it that you would like to apply to your own writing or maybe that you hope that you've already applied or, yeah, I guess just a lesson from the novel. What's something that you take away from it? 
Um, the, the main thing is just how beautiful and economic and tight and taught the language is. It makes mm. me feel my own writing is, you know, at times flabby <laughs> and, um, you know, overly written, you know, at times maybe a bit purple. I mean, some of those lists are kind of very purple, but they're, they're, they're still tight. Mm. And the other thing I loved about the book is all the kind of the insights. One of the great things about the book is what's not said, what's left unsaid. Mm. And that's that's often a characteristic of fine writing, whether it's this genre or any any genre. Yeah. And so you, you, you come to be identified very strongly with Villani, although he's not, in many ways, he's not, in some ways he's admirable, but in other ways he isn't. Um, but, yeah, I think it wouldn't be the plotting and it'd be the moral complexity and just the great writing. That's what I take out. What about you, Ben? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, like you're saying, that the economy of words, I think, would be the big thing. I just – I have a friend um, named Tim um, who I send – I've been sending my my early drafts of books to because he's the most he's the most brutal person in the world. He just cuts everything out and has just the bones, and it's so good, you know. Like he just cuts it, just cuts whole passages out, words, parts, and he sends all these things back. And I just look at the the way the the book looks without all that extra stuff I'd had in there. I'm like, oh, okay, like this is so much more clear-minded you know what i mean it's not putting on airs it's not trying to pretty itself up it's just bare and basic and i i, I really respond to that i think as a reader and like as a writer I, I aspire to do that with my own words just to get rid of the the stuff that doesn't matter so much and be aware of where that is as well yeah i think the tip for for aspiring writers and for you and I is the first draft, you know, as Peter said that he's very much a pantser. So you can imagine the first draft would have all sorts of extraneous stuff in it, superfluous and ideas that didn't end up going anywhere and all that sort of stuff. So I don't get too fast about when you're getting the first draft. I just think that one thing that many successful writers have in common is that they can critique their own work. They mm. can go back and be rather objective. I, I, I think kind of write subjectively and edit objectively. I yes, absolutely. That, that, makes, that makes sense. So, yeah, it does. Um, yeah, so, uh, but look, <laughs> I did, I did, you know, when I was reading, I was thinking, oh, God, give up now. You're not going to this Yep, it's been a constant theme with this series of podcasts. It's been a constant theme where I'm just like, oh, what am I? But hey, like, I don't know. Sarah, right, have, me back, have me back on and we'll pick some really, really <laughs> ordinary book that's done too well, you know? Yeah, not, just not, a not, an, not an Australian author, but, you know, like a Dan Brown book or something like Someone that. Someone far away that's never going to interact yeah. with us, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Or he, yeah, he's made so many millions of dollars they don't care what 
yeah, two Aussie exactly. blokes. So yeah. that sounds good. Maybe I should start doing that. Just get writers to pick like their favorite one and also one that we can sort of feel good about. <laughs> feel good about. Yeah. Do, do fifty minutes on the book that's good, and then just just as a sort of a way of rounding off ten minutes on you know the one you really hate. It's <laughs> a good idea. <laughs> Um, I guess my last question is just on you and your writing. Um, you mentioned earlier that there's one coming out this year, which is exciting. Um, and I guess, yeah, just uh, can you give us an update where you're at? What's coming out? Is there titles? Is there not? Is there, you know, what's happening it's, in the world of Chris Hammer? It's going to be called Treasure and Dirt. Wow. And it's either a standalone or more likely the start of a new series. So Scrubland, Silver and Trust. Uh, all feature Martin Scarsden and Mandalay Blonde. Yeah. Uh, this is this is a little bit um, same universe. So there are a couple of the minor characters that continue on. Mm. So just like Jack Truth Irish and, in this book. and the Broken Shore and Jack yeah. Irish and, and all of that. Yeah. It's uh, just like Jack Irish pops up for like two sentences in truth yeah that's a little bit like this this new book and yeah out in, out in october and in, in crime fiction and i've just finished the copy edit which means i've got the proof edits to come mm. and I, I i'm pretty happy with it actually it's sort of i didn't know whether to work with going off with new characters i just thought i'd put martin and mandy through so much i just, <laughs> just couldn't torch them anymore Give them a holiday for a little bit yeah oh, that's an awesome title that's really good Tre- sorry it's treasure and dirt that's amazing yeah yeah i like it um <laughs> and you're happy with it like that's a huge thing to say after after editing you're actually like hey i actually think this is pretty good i'm pretty stoked on this yeah i look i'm I'm the worst. And while I'm working on them, I'm fine. So I've still got to work. I've still got to do proof edits and that. And then once they're gone, I'm just, I get really anxious. I don't know if they're any good. Um, I still, I find it very hard to think about them objectively. Um, I relate to but that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. Fingers That's crossed. Right. It's amazing. I'm looking forward to reading it. All right. Uh, thanks, Chris. Thanks for being a part of this and thanks for selecting Truth. And uh, as always uh, on the podcast, I'd super love to hear if you guys are actually uh, reading the books. Um, tag us in Words and Nerds podcast in Twitter or Instagram. But I'd love to hear if you, if you pick up Truth by Peter Temple. I can't recommend it enough. I've been talking to some other authors as well and told them what Chris had chosen and a bunch of them were just like, oh man, such a good book. Really, I think the quintessential Australian novel. So uh, recommend it if you are um, interested in writing or reading in any way. <laughs> so big recommend. Um, and yeah, thanks, Chris. And I look forward to reading your next one soon too. And yeah, Ben, and let's, uh, let's have a burger and beer in person. Yeah, let's, let's hope for that soon, hey? All right, thanks, man.